coming up in this episode. Well, it was early in the morning that Tuesday. I came to the embassy very early. I was here around 5 o'clock. March 22nd, 2016, the day of the attack in Brussels. In those attacks, 32 people died, including four Americans. Belgium has been hammered for intelligence failures, security lapses, dysfunctionality, failure to share, all sorts of criticisms, and ultimately allowing the attack to happen. The Prime Minister, when he came for his first press conference before the international press, said the following, we knew that something was in the offing. And on this program, Belgium's ambassador to the U.S., Johan Verbecke, responds to criticism that's mounted since the Paris attacks, for which Belgium intelligence failures were also blamed, and he answers a key question. If they knew something was about to happen, why weren't they able to stop it? From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Got a very graphic situation. San Bernardino. Upwards of 14 people that are dead. We are now investigating these horrific acts as an act of terrorism. Paris. An attack on all of humanity. The Islamic State. I'm back, Obama. They want you to imagine them in the shadows as something greater than they are. Hostile nation states. They can't inflict mortal damage to the United States. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. This is Target USA. America in the crosshairs. Whether it's anarchist, cyber criminals, nation states, or terrorist, America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. I'm J.J. Green, previously on Target USA. In Paris, honestly, I don't feel really safe because I think if I hear something uh, strong, a, a strong sound, uh, I think, oh, maybe, maybe something happened. That's Emma from France, but the sentiment is widespread throughout Europe. Europol director Rob Wainwright told us the threat from the Islamic State group is significant. The most significant terrorist threat we've seen for at least a decade. And now, on this program, the anatomy of the Brussels attacks from Belgium's Man in Washington. It's a sunny, warm spring day here in Washington, and making my way up to the Belgian embassy, I'm reminded that four Americans were killed in the Brussels attacks. And walking up the steps to the embassy, I'm reminded as well that another person, very familiar with this walk, died on that day. Andre Adam, the former Belgian ambassador to the U.S., who worked in this very building, was killed at Zaventem Airport, shielding his wife during the attack. Well, it was early in the morning that Tuesday. I came to the embassy. Johan Verbeck is Belgium's five. current U.S. ambassador. He and all of his colleagues in the government were stung by the harsh criticism heaped upon them after the Brussels attacks. He agreed to sit down with us and to speak for the Belgian government and to tell us what happened and set the record straight for all of Belgium's critics. Now, the first feelings were that of a kind of drama. Clearly, this was, as I said, a treacherous attack, uh, unexpected to some extent, not fully. We knew that something was in the offing, but of course, you never know the time and the place. So it always comes as a surprise. That was the kind of first reaction. 
But very soon, a second reaction came up, and that was not just a personal reaction. I was, to some extent, surprised that it was converging with the reaction of both the government and the Belgian people as a whole. That is, we will not let ourselves to be intimidated. That was the message that came out, I would say, within the 24 hours after the attack. And that resulted, for instance, in the Belgians going back to work the day after, the children going back to school, our government clearly stating that the inquiry, the investigations would continue as they were in the past, and that our participation, for instance, in the military anti-ISIL coalition in Syria and Iraq would continue as well. So no change of policy whatsoever, no intimidation. On the contrary, a strengthened approach to tackle that scourge that is called terrorism. From a personal point of view, did you feel any strong emotions or despair or anything like that? There was no feeling, not with me, not with my fellow citizens in Belgium, of despair, of drama. On the contrary, the first reaction was, let's not over-dramatize, because if we do so, we, in a certain sense, play the game of the terrorists. Terrorists are people who want to terrorize a population. And there was a very sober reaction in Belgium, which I think shows the resilience of the Belgian people. As of the first day, even on the day of the attacks, you may have seen that there was already a vigil in the center of Brussels, a very sober thing where people just pay tribute to the victims, but with a beer in their hand, not because this was a festive moment, but to show that life will continue. But to show that life will continue. On that day, I'm sure there was a scramble going on. To the degree that you can, from your perspective, being here in Washington and it happening over there, give us a sense of what was going on behind the scenes as the government and the nation struggled to get a grip on what was going on. Yeah. Well, your question is quite pertinent. The Prime Minister, when he came for his first press conference before the international press, said the following. We knew that something was in the offing. So it's not quite that much of a surprise. But of course, we didn't know when and where. Why did he say that? Well, he said that because on the basis of the information that we had been gathering for months now, we knew that there was a treacherous network operating in the Brussels area with connections to the abroad, to France in particular, but also, as you have seen, because that emerged in the weeks since then, in Holland, in Germany, even in Italy, where one of the operative terrorists was in connection with our guys, making false documents and that kind of thing, false passports. So we knew that there was a network operating there. As a matter of fact, the attack in Brussels was the result of the terrorist feeling that we were closing in on that network. And that is why they have anticipated their action. Much evidence indicates that this attack was not planned to take place that day 
at those places, that is the airport and the metro station. And that they simply have set the date earlier because they felt that they would not be in a position anymore to carry out their attack if they waited for another, say, week or so. So that shows very well that this was not a total surprise, and it was not a total surprise because investigations were going on and the intelligence community was close to revealing what the network was about and who the main actors were. As you mentioned, the intelligence community was close to breaking the situation open before the attack took place. Now, since the Paris attacks, there has been an extraordinary amount of criticism of the intelligence community, of law enforcement, of the security services in Belgium, because most of the attackers, or many of the attackers, uh, in the, the Paris attacks, and certainly in the Brussels attack on the 22nd, were from Belgium or some part of Belgium. So the criticism has been extraordinary, saying that pieces were missed, information wasn't shared, the right things weren't done to get out ahead of these attacks. So what's your response? What is Belgium's response? Because Belgium has been pretty measured on its response so far. Yeah, well, we are known for being a people, uh, a no-nonsense people. And so I'm not going to enter into a bland game of utter denial of critical points that have been mentioned by the press. There have been weak spots. However, where I think that a bridge has been gone too far is by using cheap cliches and stereotypes. I won't recall them before you, but you know what I am referring to. We are open for a merits-based discussion. Let's look at the facts and figures. And on that account, although, again, I concede that not everything is perfect, I can tell you that things were working much better than the press and others have been uh, showing. So, for instance, I would like to stress that we were aware about potential dangers as of the very end of 2012. So that's not yesterday. That's not just after Paris. That is already back in the past. And proof of that is that in that period, you know, since 2012 up to the beginning of this year, because I don't have the latest figures, no less than 150 court trials took place in Belgium, court trials related, of course, to terrorist cases, and no less than 86 people have been convicted and are incarcerated as of that period. So we were active on the file. I would also like to point to something that people, of course, forget, but in January 15, we were successful in dismantling a network in a city close to Liège called Vervier. That network was close to operating an attack against one or perhaps more police stations, and not a small one. This was a rather great operation that was in the offing, and we could dismantle the network uh, days before the attack was being planned. So, yes, we have been successful in dismantling networks, identifying terrorists, but not everything is perfect. You also should know, and that is something I learned from the intelligence community, that every day these people receive 
hundreds of indications, hundreds of indications about what possibly could happen, who possibly could be involved. And it is very difficult to shift and sift out of those hundreds of information pieces the relevant ones. You know, after the facts, after the facts, it's rather easy to say, you know, in March last year, there was a cable coming from that office and that office telling you, you know, that name. After the facts, you can do that. But that little fact was one among thousands that entered the intelligence community. And that is one of the difficulties. I spoke with a lot of um, people here in the United States, and many of them, of course, uh, are first sympathetic. And I can tell you that the official, the official leaders of this country do not share the criticism that is being made on how our intelligence and security apparatus works. But many of these people have said to me, look, what you're going through is essentially what we went through after 9-11. We also found out at that time that things had to be changed. That is the time when you started having one single national database. We had already one in place. But again, there is room for improvement and we are working very hard on that. Ambassador, you lay out a very eloquent scenario for dealing with the perfect storm, which is essentially what took place in Belgium. I do recall uh, in early 2015 that cell that was broken up. And it turns out that some of those people involved in that cell or connected to it somehow were, I guess, the predecessors or forerunners of the group that attacked Paris. Um, um, and you were ahead of you, you were ahead of this at some point. In talking with law enforcement officials from the region, they explained just how complicated it was and still is with so many different open borders, so many different suspects, numerous language, numerous languages, the ease with which they move back and forth between those borders. And the criticism that's come from the West, much of it from the U.S., has been unfair in many ways. As a journalist, I can say, having to cover this, I've seen some strong, strong indicators and as you say, you're not going to deny that things could have been done better. But looking at the, just the strength of the criticism, it appears that there were some important elements that you were up against and Europe is up against because of the nature of the region that had not been considered when those criticisms were made. For instance, the legalities and the privacy, just the sheer number of circumstances involving those people. Break down the privacy and legal realities for us. Yeah, well, your question is, is an important one because it's a fundamental one. It goes to the heart of what your country, what your state, what your society stands for. But let me take two pieces apart. One thing is the tension between security on the one hand and, you know, privacy, rule of law on the other. But I take that up later. Let me start with the question of open society, open borders, uh, people coming in and out. Belgium is the most open economy in the world. That's just a statement of fact. I'm not inventing that. There are a couple of studies that converge on that point. Together with countries like Singapore and Switzerland, we are amongst the most open economies in the world. We, that is kind of an economic datum. 85% of what we produce in Belgium, the GDP, is being exported to the world at large. 
We are also a very open society. As you know, Belgium is a small country. But when you are a small country, the abroad is large, by definition. We are a country with the doors and windows wide open on the world because that is how we live, how we survive, but also it's a lifestyle question. We are a multilingual country, as you know. We have three official languages, Dutch, German, and French. Brussels has been qualified by the media outlet here in Washington, Politico, at the eve of Obama's visit last year as being one of the most cosmopolitan capitals in the world. That says a lot. That means that all kind of international people are moving there. We are also, as you know, located at the center of Europe. We host two large international organizations being the European Union and NATO. Both of them have their headquarters in Belgium. So there is a lot going on there in terms of international movements. And that is, of course, part and parcel of who we are. And that model, you know, and the values that subtend that kind of openness of mind, openness of country, that is not something that we are going to change. And we are not going to close in on ourselves, become an inward people, inward looking people, just because there are some terrorists out there. So on that, I won't be quite clear. On the question of security versus privacy, you rightly point to what is essentially the core issue in tackling terrorism. That is, how do you be, how are you effective in fighting terrorism and securing the security of your people while at the same time be respectful of the fundamental rights and freedoms of your people as they are being enshrined in the concept of a rule of law. The rule of law, you know, that means essentially as a state you don't do anything you wish. You respect the citizens' rights and fundamental freedoms. And that balance has to be found out. And some countries, naturally, I mean, it's because it's part of their identity, may privilege somewhat more on the security side. Others may be overstressing somewhat the privacy side, if I may simply uh, put it this way. Uh, continental Europe, for instance, is kind of more looking at fundamental freedoms and rights. Anglo-Saxon world has a higher sensitivity, and that's not a criticism. It's just a cultural datum. It's, it's part of the political culture, the security side. We now, I can tell you, as a result of this attack in the heart of Belgium, in the heart of Europe, we now have a keener awareness about how important it is also to care for the security dimension of what you do. And already some legislative initiatives have been taken that tend into that direction. We have now new legislation on house searches at night. We have new legislation on phone tapping, you know, listening to phones when we suspect connections not just with terrorism but also with, with trafficking of weapons. So you see that that kind of delicate tipping point in, in between the balance, security, privacy, is also shifting in Belgium somewhat towards security, 
but we will of course always respect we want to stay and to be a law country a country where the law is being respected let me ask two follow-up questions on your answer there the searches at night and the telephone monitoring process give us a sense of how that works yeah well again you will see the kind of tension line between security and privacy we had legislation in place where you could not do house searches uh, between 10 11 o'clock in the evening and 5 a.m in the morning that was an old long-standing rule in belgian uh, i would say security and, and, and law enforcement policies we now have changed that. We have changed that that in the area of terrorism, that is whenever there are suspicions or whatever, uh, night searches can be done as well. Some people are quite surprised about that, but I can tell you that this is a rule that not just stood in Belgium, but stands in many countries. But some are indeed surprised, and even some Belgian people, I can tell you, were surprised that you could not go after terrorists at night. So that is, for instance, a first important shift in the attitude of uh, the Belgians and the Belgian government. As far as the phone monitoring is concerned, again, the system essentially, and I don't want to go into the details also because I'm not, I'm not a specialist of investigations and all that kind of things, but basically what we had was a rule that for any phone monitoring uh, operation to be carried out, you needed a prior authorization by what we call an investigative judge. It's a judge, so it's somebody from the judiciary as, as different from the executive, because the police, of course, uh, may, is, is part of the executive power of a country. So somebody of the judiciary had to come in to give you an authorization for proceeding for phone monitoring. Now, these authorizations have been either abolished for certain areas, well-circumscribed areas of criminal activities, or have been relaxed in terms of making it much easier to obtain such authorization. Again, as you see, a shift towards the security dimension of uh, the you know, fight against terrorism. Mm -hmm. This tension that you talk about, how is the intelligence community there and police community there responded to the changes that have taken place there because one of the things that's pretty well known about Belgium is that it has numerous police agencies operating and sometimes um, you know it's kind of difficult here in Washington there are 20 or 30 agencies uh, police agencies just in the district in the city uh, working and sometimes it can make things hard to do to get things done so how have the agencies responded to these changes there in Belgium well, again, uh, an, an important question. You started the interview by saying that there are a lot of complexities in uh, such uh, a matter, and, and this is one of them. Now, let me just make two distinctions. The first one is we have a federal police, which is a nationwide police, and much of what is involved in uh, the fight against terrorism is being handled by the federal police. So there you don't have that question of segmentation and diffraction or whatever. That is just one single Belgian police. I also want to stress that we have one single database and that was not after Brussels or after Paris. That was already before uh, these events. One single terrorist 
database for the whole country. What we do have in the Brussels region is six police districts, as we call them. So that's not the federal police, that is the police below the federal level. And indeed, as you point out, these six districts have to work together. Now, you may say, look, why in the hell do you have six districts for a capital that is something like 1.23 million people living together? The reason is that police respond at two slightly contradictory imperatives. The first one is what you could call the principle of proximity. Police don't have to be abstract entities living on Mars. They have to be living among their community, close to the citizens. That is what we call proximity. And that is why you have those districts. At the same time, of course, they have to work together, as we now see in the challenging situation of fighting terrorism. And then you have to establish bridges and coordination mechanisms. On that point, for instance, we are clear that there is room for improvement and we are working on that. I'm not saying that it didn't work out. There was a lot of working together among those districts, but not always and not always fast enough. And that is something that we are not going to review. No doubt, Belgium has a lot to work on and is well into the process. As they work through their issues, there's some good news. The ambassador said they believe the Belgian cell has been wrapped up. Without saying that we are victorious on the whole picture, but that network, I think, is basically dismantled. There may be still some people around that we have to look at together with the other intelligence services, how we catch them. We also have to be very vigilant to see whether some other networks may be working in the periphery of that close central network. So still work to be done. And sure enough, just as this podcast was about to go live, Belgium's top threat analysis organization announced it's seeing signs that ISIL is once again trying to flood Europe and indeed Belgium with more terrorists, making one of the key tasks figuring out where they are and what they're up to. And coming up on our next program. Terrorists have become so smart about U.S. intelligence that they've actually changed their operations to avoid detection. They have said, I need to change my, uh, my, the way that I communicate in order to avoid uh, being detected by NSA. And a lot of them have actually done that. And that includes um, terrorist groups. NSA Deputy Director Rick Leggett said they've intercepted intelligence proving that it's not just people who are aspirational about attacking the U.S., but those who actually have plans. Including at least one terrorist group that was actively engaged in operational plans directed against the United States. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA.